Today we come to our last of three teachings in the book of First Thessalonians, a series we're calling Fully Alive, how the gospel of Jesus brings personal, relational, and even cultural renewal. And today we come to a very practical and very important subject pertaining to our habits. I'm excited. First Thessalonians, but are you excited? You're like, oh, are they good? Are they bad? Well, those are the questions that we need to ask this morning. We read a paragraph that contains a series of instructions, exhortations, practices that we are to take up, practices that will transform our lives. It is important that we understand them and that we embrace them. So to do that, we'll read the text, we'll pray together, and we'll walk through it that we might know and understand what these habits are and the change they bring to our lives. First Thessalonians Chapter 5, verse 12 to 22. Let me read the text, and then we'll pray together once more. Paul the Apostle writes, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning as we open your word, would you open our hearts Thank you that every person in this room matters to you and those joining us online. And we pray that you would speak into the cares and concerns of our heart. Speak into the daily habits and routines and practices of our lives. Show us how it is that you want to transform them. And in doing so, transform us by pointing us to Jesus and causing us to become more like him. And for anyone here this morning who does not yet know Jesus and all that you've done for us in him, we pray that today they would. Spirit of God, would you speak? We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, the daily habits of our lives may not make the headlines, but they absolutely transform the direction we are headed. I read a book a while back uh, called Atomic Habits by author James Clear. And on the importance of daily habits, consider this illustration. Imagine that you are flying from Los Angeles to New York City. If a pilot leaving from LAX adjusts the heading of the plane just 3.5 degrees south, you will not land in New York City. You will land instead in Washington, D.C. 
Such a small change will be barely noticeable if you're a passenger. Even the nose of the airplane will move just a few feet. But when magnified across the entire United States, you will end up in a completely different location. And on that point, the author, James Clear, says, Similarly, a slight change in your daily habits or choices can guide your life to a very different destination. Making a choice that is 1% better or 1% worse seems insignificant in the moment. But over the span of moments that make up a lifetime, these choices determine the difference between who you are now and who you could be. This is, of course, true for all habits, but this is magnified when it comes to the life of a man or woman who follows Jesus. See, many of us assume that growth is only going to come through one massive earth-shattering event. New job, new house, new neighborhood, new relationship. But what if some of the greatest growth actually came through the more ordinary, daily choices that we make? I say that because one of the reasons that some of us may not have been growing is because we placed all our eggs in one basket. We think that we can only grow. We can only change in an earth-shattering event, the type that you can like post on social media. For Christians, this is the conference. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good conference. I often teach at them. But we often look to them like, man, if I could just go to a conference, then I would change. I'd be a different man, a different woman. If I could just go to this retreat, if I can just go to that event, and by all means, those things are good. But if we only value them to the neglect of our daily choices, then we will not grow. Now, let me be clear. When it comes to beginning a relationship with God, It actually does happen in one life-changing moment. If you put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ and all that he's done for you, your entire position and standing with God changes in an instant. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are saved. Your sins can be forgiven in a moment. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Are you with me? That is an earth-shattering, life-changing moment. But from that moment on, we must grow. We must mature. We must become who God desires us to be. And in order to grow, in order to mature, to make sure that we don't fall away, it is more often than not a series of 1,001 smaller choices that you and I make every single day. What we have before us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12 through 22 is a list of practical instructions actions that the writer, the Apostle Paul, calls the church to practice, to make their habits. And this is true for all believers. For context, Paul has just written about 
the second coming of Jesus Christ, reminding these believers that there will be a day, though the world will grow worse, Jesus Christ will return. Though his kingdom has been inaugurated, it will one day be consummated, and he will bring justice and resurrection for those who do not trust in Jesus to eternal condemnation for those who do trust in Jesus, eternal glory. One day that will happen. We do not know when. And the question is, well, how do we live? And the answer to that comes in this paragraph. And you might be surprised because his instructions here in light of all that he has said may not seem spectacular. But do not underestimate their power in your daily life. They are channels of blessings. Daily choices that if you practice them and embrace them, it will lead you in the direction of who God wants you to become. So what are they? I'm listing out six headings here from this passage. We'll work through them very quickly. And again, some of them might surprise you. Some of you are like, wait a minute, someday Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be a final judgment. Like, what do I do? Do I like go off the grid, live in a van and make my own jelly? Like, what do I do? Well, here's the first point. Love your leaders. You're like, oh, it's not really what I expected. Like the world's going to end. I'm supposed to care about my leaders? Yeah. <laughs> What prompted the Apostle Paul's instruction in verse 12 to 13, we do not know. But his instruction is necessary for our growth. He says there, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. It's surprising. It's instruction that we do not expect. We're like, wait a minute. I, I thought that in light of the state of the world, I'm supposed to go do some crazy thing. And yet, look how practical Paul becomes. Clearly, we learn that God intends for there to be leaders in and amongst the church community. Some leaders will have an office like an elder pastor. Others may be leaders over specific ministries. Some might be paid like a staff member. Some might be volunteers like many of, of you. We see that in the New Testament. We see it played out in our church today. And it is important to recognize leaders because when it comes to leadership, we t often tend towards two extremes. We either deify leaders or we demonize leaders. We tend to deify leaders as if they're a celebrity or we demonize them like they're the enemy. We can deify leaders as if they are the answer to everything or we demonize leaders as if they are the problem with everything. I'm sure you've noticed this in your own lives or amongst people that you know. For some people, they're like, it's all about the, the leader, and you praise them as if they're on this like whole other tier of super spiritual Christianity, and you're like, leaders! Oh my, you notice this when somebody's new to a church? You are the best leader ever! And then six months later, you're like, I hate you. You know what the problem with this church, with reality Ventura is? The leadership. Leadership. 
That's the whole problem with everything. It's like, wow, you went from one extreme to another. Believe me, I hear it all the time. You get the email, you're the best thing ever. Two weeks later, I'm leaving the church because of leadership. Like, okay. And Paul's response, settle down, people. You need to have a right view of leaders. So how can you learn to accept leaders in love? Well, first of all, notice what defines good leadership for Paul. He says there in verse 12, those who work hard, those who are over you, that is they have a responsibility, and those who admonish you. That means they're calling you to follow Jesus. It's very simple. Now, this often entails many things. It can be studying, teaching, organizing, developing, training, correcting, teaching, and caring. All of these tasks demand a lot of energy, mentally, emotionally, for sure, spiritually. So for those of you who do lead, you might even be in this room, you might oversee a community group, you might be a teacher in our kids ministry or in our, our youth ministry or a staff member, there's a great responsibility here for those of you who lead. There's a great responsibility for me and the other pastor elders and the staff members to take to heart. I know for myself in the role of an elder pastor, there's a great responsibility for the doctrine and preaching of the church. There's a great responsibility for anyone who leads in serving teams or, or different groups, and we are all to take these words to heart. And for those of you who are led by them, what should your attitude be towards them? Well, we should neither deify them or demonize them. Paul says here that you will learn to love your leaders rightly as you value the importance of the work that they do. That's how you learn to rightly view leaders. You look at the responsibility, the scriptural responsibility that they've been given, rightly value it, and acknowledge the importance that it has in your life. Like, man, I, I need this encouragement. I need this teaching. I'm thankful for the organization. The way that you learn to acknowledge your leaders in love is by rightly valuing the work that God has given them to do. And make it a habit. Make it a habit to honor leaders by acknowledging this. In fact, the community group leaders didn't pay me to say this, but you know it'd be a great thing. If you're involved in a community group, send your leaders a text this week. I'll even give you permission to text on your phone during church. It's okay. Text them to say, I'm so thankful for your leadership. You don't need to call them a celebrity. No. Just thank them. Say, hey, I acknowledge the work you do. I acknowledge that. Feel free to send a message to other leaders that you know in the church. And this combination of habitual appreciation and affection will produce health in the whole of the community. But note, the existence of leaders does not relieve us from our responsibility to one another. And that leads to the second point, commit to community. Some of you are like, oh, I have no problem with leaders. It's the rest of the people in the church that's the problem. Well, this point's for you. You need to love your leaders, but you also need to commit to community. And I want you to note that the instruction in verse 14 and 15 is both helpful and realistic. A high value in the Chaddock household. Realism. Versus the end of verse 13 to 15. Live in peace with each other. 
And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. I don't know how you would define the best predictor for long and strong relationships. But you might be surprised as to what the Bible says predicts the health of a community. For many of us, we might think, is it our shared experience? Is it our shared education? Is it sharing the same background? Is that the best predictor of long and fruitful community? Well, surprisingly, according to Scripture, one of the best predictors that your community will last a long time is how you handle conflict. Yay! This is key because many of us, we question our community and our relationships at the first sign of an argument. Oftentimes when people are new to church, they come to a community group and their expectations are very high and all of a sudden there's an argument and they're like, I don't know if this is for me. And I'm like, yeah, actually it probably is. In fact, I've often wondered if we should put this on our website for when somebody signs up to a group. You're like, oh, I'm so excited to get involved in a group. What are they like? It's like, oh, welcome to Reality Ventura. If you join a group, uh, you can be sure that you'll find people who are idle and disruptive. They're a part of your group. Um, there's going to be people who are disheartened and weak. And you need to be patient with everyone. And some people are going to be tempted to pay wrong for wrong. But it's going to be good because you're there. And you're like, oh, it's not really what I was expecting. Well, here's what. You should add another little box that you have to, like, I understand that in ticking this box and in joining this group that I too acknowledge that at times I will be idle and unruly and weak and I need the encouragement of other people. Right? That might be a good idea. See, I don't know what your idea of community entails, but for Paul, he's very realistic about the challenges that you will face within the church, and so he calls us to live in peace. But he equips us for how to do that. He says, given the fact that we're a messy group of people, he says, warn the idol. This is going to be a part of your commitment to community. Warn the people who are idle. That is, people who are unruly or out of order, they must be warned, and you get to play a part in that. Encourage the timid. That is, those who are on the verge of giving up. See, everyone's not in the same boat. Some people need a strong correction. Other people need a strong encouragement. People who are timid, they don't need like a strong rebuke. They need an encouragement reminding them of all the reasons they have to keep on pressing forward. They need to be persuaded not to give up. Help the weak, he says. And though Paul does not specify with examples or illustrations of what he means by the weak, it's, it means those who struggle. Help them. Take an interest in them. Pay attention to them and support them if you can. And while different people may require different attention, patience is required for everyone. Christianity is not about looking for perfect people. 
But just as God came to save imperfect people, so we are called to be in community with imperfect people. This should set your expectation. We need to learn to love our leaders, make it a habit. We need to commit to community even when it is hard. And when it all goes wrong, which at times it will, don't take revenge. He says, don't pay one another wrong for wrong, which is often what people do in Christian community. They keep score. Oh, I don't like how that woman treated me at community group. You're like, note to self, I will be passive aggressive in my punishment of you over the next three months or four if I so determine and desire. Oh, you texted me? Sorry, I didn't get it. <laughs> oh, sorry, you reached out for help? <laughs> Must have went to my junk mail. How interesting is that? It's so true. Oftentimes we don't say it, but Christians keep score. But thanks be to God, he deals with us with patience and with grace. And so we are to do towards one another. Amen? We're all broken people in need of a savior and we're helping each other in the direction of Jesus. That is community. Don't pay one another wrong for wrong. Don't take revenge, but make peace with all. Make peace with all. But of course, this is not easy. And it's going to require growth in your own personal life. And so he begins to commend a few habits for your soul. Love your leaders, commit to community, and thirdly, practice joy. You're going to need it. Practice joy, which is amazing considering the circumstance from which the Apostle Paul writes these words. You may remember that he wrote this letter to a church he was separated from because of persecution. Paul had moved into this ancient city of Thessalonica to plant a church. Men and women became Christians, but then he was kicked out of town because he was preaching the Christian message, and he was desperately trying to return to them. It was a difficult scenario. And yet, even in the midst of that opposition, Paul writes these words, not from a place of comfort, but from a place of challenge. He says in verse 16, simply, rejoice always. What is rejoicing? It doesn't simply mean feel happy. Don't read the Bible and see that command where it says rejoice always and think that they're just saying, hey everyone, feel happy. Because that's impossible to conjure up that feeling. And yet that's what a lot of people think when they hear the word rejoice. They come to church, maybe you came to church this morning, you've had a really hard week. And if you interpret the word rejoice as feel happy now, then you're going to be confused. When you come to a church service and the worship leader's like, hey, everyone rejoice. And you're like, as if it were a command, like you could just will it into existence. Feel happy, feel happy, feel happy. I'm happy. All right, everyone, we all happy? Okay. Yay. We're happy, clappy church now. That's not what the word rejoice means. The word rejoice means Add up the worth of something in your mind in order to treasure it. There's some effort there. You have to add up the worth of something in your mind. Think of all the reasons. You put your mind to it 
in order to rightly value it, and that will lead to joy. Tim Keller says it best in this quote, rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened. Let me repeat that. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened. What's interesting about that quote is the order. Oftentimes, our heart will not be in a place like ready to rejoice. But when we rejoice and we discipline ourselves to add up the worth of Jesus, our hearts may not be there in the beginning, but it will most certainly follow as we add up the worth of Jesus together, remember who he is, remember what he's done, and the result of fixing our eyes and our hearts and our minds on him will then produce joy. That's why it is often referred to as a practice, a resilient practice, a practice that doesn't hinge on your circumstances. It is a joy that says, nevertheless. You should do a word study in the Bible on the word, nevertheless. Many men and women of faith throughout the pages of Scripture endure hardship but you will often find them saying, life is hard, nevertheless, I'm going to praise God. People are out to get me, nevertheless, God is with me. My circumstances are terrible, nevertheless, God is my guide. That is a defiant joy, a resilient joy. We add up the worth of Jesus together. We remind ourselves of all that we have in God until our hearts sweeten. I think this is, this is huge because if you're like me, it's easy to express yourself when things are difficult. Right? It's easy to complain and to say these things out loud. But the question is this. Are you just as loud with your rejoicing as you are with your complaints? Right? It's easy to complain. Like, just go on Google reviews of restaurants, right? Like, very few times do people go to a restaurant like, this was so good. I am going to go home. I'm going to log into my Google account and write a five-star review. Like, it's got to be pretty spectacular for you to give a five-star review. But we all know it only takes one mistake from your server for a two-star review. You're like, they did not. The food was fine. They failed to refill my water cup. How dare you? I even mentioned it. I did the... And they didn't. Two stars! I would never recommend this place to someone else. Like, it is so easy for us to complain, and we often do it loudly. And don't get me wrong, there is a biblical way that the Bible provides for us, like in the Psalms, where we can bring our complaint to God. I'm not saying stuff your emotions, pretend like everything is good. I'm not saying that. There's a biblical way to express our complaints to God. Read the Psalms. They are there. My question is, are we just as loud as our praise as we are with our complaints? Oftentimes we're very loud. Here's what I don't like about church. Here's what I don't like about my life. You're like, okay, that's fair. Bring that to God. That's a real need. Now, what can you praise God for right now? Let's be loud about it. 
See, one of the reasons that we do this in church, we sing together when we gather, is it's not primarily about our likes and dislikes of musical style. Like the point of church is not to come and be like, I don't really like acoustic guitars. I prefer organ. You're like, okay, that's great. That's fine. But that's not the point. The point is not, do we like the style of service? The point is, am I being re-centered and refocused on God? That is the point. And so, when a worship leader is calling us to to worship, they are doing just that. They're saying, hey, we've all had weeks that could have been full of, of good things or bad things, but right now the goal is to refocus on God and call up shouts of praise as a way of adding up the worth of Jesus so that we might focus on him, see all that he's done for us, and as a result, experience joy. Practice joy. It's this repetitive habit that recenters us on all that God has done for us. And notice, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's not like, hey guys, if you're in a good mood, rejoice. <laughs> it's a command. But think about it like this How great is our God that He would make our joy a priority? Isn't that crazy? Like, oftentimes we see a command like this, oh, the Bible commands me to rejoice. But think about it. God's like, I love you, and I want you to experience real joy, so I'm going to command you to rejoice so that you focus on the things that will give you joy. What a good God. The commands of God are not burdensome. They are good. He's like, rejoice always because I want you to have joy. And if praise is an indispensable habit, then so is prayer. And that's the fourth habit. Pray as a lifestyle. We got to love our leaders, commit to community, practice joy, and pray as a lifestyle. For this is the idea behind Paul's instructions regarding prayer when he says in verse 17, pray continually. Prayer, speaking with Communing with God is to be a daily practice. But in saying pray continually, Paul does not envision that you would never leave your your room, or that you would never leave your, your prayer closet, as it were, but that you have an attitude of prayer. In fact, in the original Greek language, the word here means constantly reoccurring. May prayer be constantly reoccurring in your life. And this happens in both private prayer as well as public prayer. Private prayer, times when you are just alone praying to God. Jesus talks about this. We see him both teach it and model it in the gospel accounts. So there is an assumption that you will have a regular pattern of private prayer. Whenever time that is that you set aside to pray, it's something that you and I are to cultivate. And then you carry that attitude of prayer into your day, no matter where you are. It could be in your car. It could be in school. It can be at work, between meetings, or in the middle of meetings. I don't know about you, but I've learned to pray a lot in meetings, not because I'm super spiritual, but because I'm super desperate. I'll be in a meeting where I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so what do I pray? Lord, help. Which, when I get to heaven, if there was a list of my top 10 most prayed prayers, that would be number one. It's two words. 
It's easy. Lord, help. Lord, comma, help, exclamation mark. That's my most common prayer. There are so many times I'm in a conversation with someone and maybe they're pouring out their heart or they're in desperate need and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like listening to them. If you ever talk to me, by the way, and I'm just nodding, it's usually because I'm praying because I probably don't know what to do. But you're asking me what to do. So I'm like, Lord, please help. (laughs) Spirit of God, help me. Pray continually wherever you are. You're at work. It's difficult. You're stressed out. You're angry. God, help me. That's part of what it means to pray continually private prayer, but there's also public prayer. After all, Paul is writing to a church community. We are to pray continually. That is, to use Paul's language, prayer meetings should occur constantly and continually in the church. And so we make it a practice to pray together. We pray together on Sundays. You pray with one another in your community groups. We have our first Tuesday prayer and worship night. Set aside time of corporate praise and worship. We have our weekly morning prayer. Why? Because we're to make it a habit. It's a command. But again, think of the beauty of this command. Just like the command to rejoice reveals a commitment of God to our joy, notice the command to pray continually also means that God is listening continually. And isn't that wonderful? If God says pray continually, it is only because he's listening continually. Friends, do you know what this means? It means there will never be a situation you are in that you cannot pray. You'll never be in a circumstance in life in which you cannot pray to God. You're never going to get that annoying message when you call like a business. It's like, sorry, God is not in right now. Heaven is closed. We will reopen during our normal operating business hours of nine to five. Please call back then. It'll never happen in prayer. God will never say, hey, I know you're trying to pray right now for help, but I'm kind of busy. A lot of stuff going on in the world. You're like, right, God. He's like, I'm ready at five. Okay, if you could come back then, that'd be great. The command to pray continually means that God is listening continually. Which reminds us that prayer is a conversation that actually doesn't start with us. It starts with God. He's inviting us. And these habits together, they produce more life-giving habits, which produces more growth in your life. Think about all these habits together as they work together. You love your leaders. You're committed to community. You practice joy. You pray as a lifestyle. Think of the habits that that produces in your life. Think of the wonders that will happen in your own heart. Charles Spurgeon, God bless him, may he rest in peace and rise forever, the prince of preachers, once said, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. When prayer and joy are married, their firstborn child is gratitude, which leads to the fifth habit, cultivate gratitude. What is God's will for your life? You might wonder this morning. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, why is it God's will for me to give thanks in all circumstances? Why is gratitude so important? Well, let me start with the negative. Ingratitude comes from entitlement which comes from pride, and it kills your soul. Here's how entitlement happens in your life. First, you receive a gift. 
right? It's always nice to receive a gift. But then you get used to the gift. It's not as special anymore. Then you expect the gift, and then you think you deserve the gift, right? We, we see this all, especially in young children. You give them something like a new toy, and they're like, yay! And then after a while, they're like, yeah, it's kind of cool. And then you're like, where's my next gift? Where's my gift? And then you're like, why haven't you given, I deserve this gift, right? That, that, we see it in small children, but let's be honest, it happens in our hearts all the time. God gives us salvation, and at first we're like, yes, I'm saved. And then after a few weeks, I don't like church. These people are annoying. I don't like that song. Why are they playing this song? I didn't request this song. It's not on my worship playlist. You know what? This church should let me choose my songs. That's how it should happen. That's, how, that's what's wrong. It's the leaders again, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Think of how the process of entitlement happens. It'll kill your soul. Instead, you recognize your life is a gift. You never earned that gift. You and I, we don't deserve the gift. Your salvation is a gift. Your relationship with God is, is, is a gift. Make a habit of finding reasons to be grateful. Now you say, but really? What about my circumstances? Well, notice an important detail here. He does not say, thank God for every circumstance. He says, thank God in every circumstance. And there's a big difference, right? If you like walk down the street and break your leg, you're like, God, thank you. Thank you for my broken leg. Thank you that my leg is broken. It's not what he's saying. But in that moment, God, I thank you that you are with me, even if I broke my leg. See, that changes it, doesn't it? It's not that we have to thank God for every circumstance, but we always have reasons to thank God in our circumstance. Thank God that you are never alone. Maybe you're going through a very difficult time. God's not calling you to be, you know, like, God, I thank you that life is bad. But you can pray, God, I thank you that you are with me and you never leave me, even when it is hard. You can be thankful that you are never without hope. You might feel as if you have tunnel vision right now and it's just all darkness. But you can be thankful that your life is not in the hands of blind chance or fate. You can say, God, I'm like really wrestling with depression right now. I'm really wrestling with anxiety right now. But I thank you that even though I don't see it, I'm never left without hope. And I know how the story ends. Be thankful that your greatest need has already been taken care of, which is such a good practice for me. Whenever you're dealing with like ingratitude and you're just like bummed out about all this stuff's happening in your life, start there. God, even though I'm wrestling with how these other needs aren't met right now, or at least that's how I'm interpreting it, I am so thankful that you have taken care of my greatest need, which is forgiveness of sin, deliverance from the wrath of judgment, and the promise of eternity with you. Put that in your gratitude journal, right? It's a good way to start. And be thankful that you're never without guidance. You're like, God, I don't know which way to go, but I thank you that you are with me. Which actually leads to the last habit. Listen to God. How are we supposed to live in light of the world going crazy and the fact that we need to be ready to give an account for our lives at any moment and Jesus will someday return though we do not know the day or the hour? What do we do? Love your leaders. 
Commit to community. Practice joy. Pray as a lifestyle. Cultivate gratitude. And by all means, listen to God. Paul has already commended this church in chapter 2 for the way that they viewed Scripture, for the way that they viewed the Bible. They had an appetite for the Scriptures. They understood the Scriptures to be the very Word of God. This is, for the church, our authority. The Bible is our authority. And in the Word of God, we discover that the Spirit of God will often speak through and to the people of God. And though discernment is necessary, we should always tune our hearts to listen to God's voice. And so Paul says in verse 19 to 22, do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Notice, it is possible to live in such a way that we quench the Spirit. But what does that mean? The word quench means to extinguish a flame. But lest you be overly worried that you're going to accidentally quench the Spirit, remember this. The fire of the Holy Spirit, to use a metaphor, is not like a little birthday candle that could accidentally go out. You know how little candles, you're like lighting the birthday in like one child breeze on it and it's out. You're like, really? I don't have enough lighter fluid for this. Like, they just go out. That's not how the flame of the Spirit is described. The Spirit's power is described as a blazing fire. And yet, even a furnace can be put out. Not accidentally. If you have a fireplace going in in, in your home, you don't just breathe and it goes out and you're like, whoops, fire's out. That's not how it happens. The way that you can put out that fire is intentionally. What do you do? You kill the oxygen. Maybe you pour water on it. Here's my point. Paul is warning us about making constant choices that are opposed to the Holy Spirit, just like someone would intentionally want to put out a fire by starving the oxygen and pouring water on it. Paul says, don't do that when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And keep in mind, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. Do not resist God and his work in your life. And one specific way to do that is by despising truth when it is spoken to us. What does prophecy mean? It's such a mysterious word. Well, one simple definition of this. What is prophecy in the life of the church? Prophecy is this. Truth that God brings to mind. Simple definition. Prophetic words, if you will, are truths that God brings to mind for the encouragement of another person. Truths that God brings to mind. It's inspiration from the Holy Spirit to connect the truth of God to people's real life situations and circumstances. Prophecy in that way can happen in preaching, like listening to the Bible being taught. It can happen in normal conversation. It can happen in prayer. The Spirit at times will bring truth to mind and prompt a person to share with one another. A scripture perhaps brought to bear on the current situation at hand. 
And so our attitude must be, what is God's word saying to me now? That should be our attitude, expectancy. Now, there's a caveat. Not everything people will say to you in the name of God will be true. You need discernment. Like when I was going to Bible college 20 years ago and everyone went around on campus saying, God told me you're going to be my spouse. And we're like, oh, that's interesting because God didn't tell me that. (laughs) And so he says, test all things in verse 21. Any words given to you claiming to be from God must be tested. And so we ask, is it in line with the Bible? Does it reflect the gospel? Does it build up the church? If not, reject it. Don't just accept it blindly because somebody says they spoke in the name of God. Examine and investigate it in regard to its trustworthiness and genuineness. And remember that nothing truly coming from the Holy Spirit will contradict Scripture. Discard what is bad, but do not become a cynic. Some of you have had bad experiences in the church and you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You're like, somebody said this random thing in the name of God is it one true, so I'm never going to listen to, you know, a word of prophecy. I'm never going to listen to the Holy Spirit. Paul's instruction here is wonderfully balanced. Discard what is bad, but if it's good, hold on to it and avoid every form of evil. The heart behind all of this is that the oxygen for the fire of the Spirit, if you will, the way we fan into flame the work of the Spirit in our lives is our willingness to listen, our willingness to follow the way of Jesus. And I want you to notice, you might hear all these and think, oh gosh, these are just a bunch of like lists of rules that I got to do. I got to add them to everything else going on in my life. But friends, listen. Notice the emphasis on the Holy Spirit comes right at the end of all these commands because the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to do them. Let the Spirit lead you in respecting leaders. Let the Spirit help you in your community relationships. Let the Spirit move you to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks and to listen to His voice. See, all of these habits are empowered by God, and that's why we call them habits of grace. These are not habits that earn you life from God. They are habits that enable you to enjoy life from God. These are not six things to do so that God will accept you. Don't hear them like that. These are not habits of law. These are habits of grace. Jesus Christ has earned you a place with God. See, where all of us have failed to to honor God and to honor and serve one another and to rejoice and to pray and to receive, Jesus lived perfectly for us. Jesus came with honor, commitment, rejoicing, praying, grateful, perfectly led by the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus died on a cross in our place, he died for our failure to do so, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be brought into a right relationship with him by grace. And all of these habits that he calls us to make our own are ways to stay near to him. They're not about earning from God. They are about enjoying God. They are about putting yourself in the path of God's grace. We neglect them to our own detriment but we embrace them for our growth. These are channels through which God nourishes us. God 
blesses us. These are powerful ways of stirring up affection for Jesus. These practices are not just the will of God so you should do them, but they are empowered by God so that you can do them. The Holy Spirit helps you, guides you, empowers you, all because of what Jesus Christ has done. So where are we neglecting? Maybe there are certain areas where we have neglected them. We don't value their importance. Ask right now for the Spirit to shine a light on what that might be. Where do you need encouragement just to keep going, to keep pressing on? In what areas do you need to rejoice? In what areas do you need to reconnect with the people God has called you to be with in community? Our moment right now is the moment to respond and to allow His Spirit to guide us ultimately towards Jesus. Let's do that now. Father, I thank you that these instructions that you've given us here are empowered by your Holy Spirit. Their goal is for your glory and our good. I pray, God, that we would see the goodness of these instructions, that these help us, they enable us to connect with what you've already given to us in Jesus. I pray that we would receive any area where you're challenging us to make these priorities. I pray that you would encourage us where we just feel weak or timid or faint of heart. Spirit of God, you know what every one of us needs to hear, and I pray that you would speak to us even now. And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that right now, as they ask, well, how do I even get started, that they would know that it starts by putting their faith in Jesus. And that this morning they would say, Jesus, save me. Save me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. And may they experience your goodness even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this moment, even now, as we respond to the word of God, is a moment of ordinary yet powerful opportunities for us to draw near to Jesus. Communion is available. We're called to do this regularly because we need to be reminded regularly that Jesus died and he rose again. If you're a Christian, I'm calling you to come here to the front of the stage, grab the communion elements, eat the bread, drink the cup as you confess your sin, remembering that Jesus died for your sin that you can receive forgiveness anew and afresh. I invite you to come. There are men and women to my left and to my right here wearing the prayer lanyards against the wall. They're here to pray with you and for you. Come and pray. There's no request too small or too great. Come and pray. Where is it that you need encouragement? Where is it that you need guidance? Where is it that you need healing? Maybe just need wisdom for the situation you're in. Maybe you just feel like you have tunnel vision. Maybe that was a specific description for where you're at. Come and pray and watch what God will do. Ask for the Spirit to speak prophetically into your own heart, to put courage into your heart. And as we sing, church, let's rejoice. This isn't about how we feel right now or how everything's going right now. It's about how worthy Jesus is. Amen? 
It's about remembering all that he's done for us. It's focusing on that that causes our hearts to experience joy. So let's press in right now. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. Let us respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts right now.